Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So, good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. We're excited to have you this morning. Uh, If you're the parent of a teenager like I am, uh, actually, I have about two and a half, really three, teenagers at home. One, one's 12, but she'll be 13 very, very soon. Uh, just, just to give you a word of encouragement, if you ever look at your teenagers and you wonder, is anything, is anything I'm saying, is anything they're hearing, is any of it making any difference and sinking in? Uh, Ashley and I were struck this morning looking up on the stage at Ryan and Lauren and Matt and Josh all leading worship, and we remembered when we knew them when they were 10 and 11 and 12 years old in our youth group. And I can tell you, they're pretty impressive uh, these days, but not so much back then. We had a lot of worries. (laughs) And youth pastors worry, too. You're not alone, parents. Youth pastors look at the kids in their group and think, is anything ever going to come of these kids? Bring your kids to church. Get them in the youth group. Make sure they're there. God works. Uh, He's faithful. Amen. Uh, We believe that. So, so neat to see all of you guys uh, leading up here this morning. We continue uh, this morning in a series And you might as well kind of just settle in because we're going to be here in Romans for quite a while. That's the way we do things around here. Uh, This is in some ways a once in a lifetime. We may never, we may never find our way back, uh, at least as long as I'm the pastor here uh, to this, to this book. And so we're going to take our time and and enjoy ourselves because there's a lot here for us to take in. Uh, This is a really important letter. It's, it's been the most single-handed instrument in God's arsenal to change the lives of the people who have most changed the world. And we come this morning to a very familiar passage of scripture. We're going to really focus on verses 16 and 17 and not so much on what comes before. I wanted to give you that there for context. We'll look at it a little bit. But you see in verses 16 and 17, Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. And so if you're, you know, if you can remember high school English or if you're there now, you know that if you're writing a paper, the very first thing you do in the very first paragraph is, is you give in very small condensed form what the rest of the paper that you're writing is going to be about. And that is exactly what Paul's doing here. He introduces themes and ex- that he's going to explore throughout 
uh, the rest of the letter of Romans. So the terminology here is very important. The focus is on defining our terms, and that's what our focus is this morning as well, that there is a working vocabulary that you have to have in order to understand all that Paul's going to say in the rest of the book. And so Romans 1, 16 and 17 is what I've called a gospel glossary. And that really is the title of our sermon. We're going to try to develop a gospel glossary this morning as we work through these verses together. And the first term, of course, is the term gospel. If we're going to have a gospel glossary, we first have to know, make sure we're on the same page in knowing what we mean by the word gospel itself. Romans is Paul's gospel. Christianity is gospel. That is, Christianity is news and not instruction. It is good news, it's not good advice. And in the ancient world, a gospel was the publication or the announcement of some life-changing event that had happened. So something like the birth announcement of a king or of a Caesar or the, uh, the announcement of a military victory to a city after they had sent their soldiers off to war, whatever the case might be. We know this from archaeological evidence, such as, I think I have something ready for you here, an inscription dating to 9 B.C., uh, telling of the birth of Caesar Augustus. Look at the words here. Here's what, here's what this, uh, this inscription says. The providence which has ordered the whole of life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving, it, by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor, that's the word savior, of, among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings. Guess what word that is? Gospel. That have come to men through him. Now, that's a pagan Roman inscription. Isn't it amazing how, how clear and, I mean, how, how clear there's a connection between a lot of the terminology that we use and that, we can, that, that w- was come to be used in the New Testament and then that has come down to us as well. Words like providence and savior and gospel. These are Christian words, but they were Roman words too. And it's fascinating to me to consider the similarities between this and say the birth announcement of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 by the angelic host to the shepherds while they watched their flock at night. The New Testament is doing something very specific. The New Testament co-opted these words and this idea, this word of this idea of gospel to announce the arrival of the true king. The one who would truly make war cease and create order everywhere and bring good tidings of great joy to all people. And so if you want to get an idea of what we mean by this word gospel, maybe the best way for us in a contemporary setting to say it would be that the gospel is a newspaper headline. It really is in the realm of the news media. And so if, if I want to illustrate that for you, I have a few ways of doing that. It, uh, the, the idea of gospel could best be illustrated by something like this. This is a newspaper clipping from uh, the days just following um, uh, the, the surrender and the, arm, and the armistice at the end of World War II, or like this. I love that one. It's over over here. Victory, this declaration of what God had done. Gospel's very close to this, but it's not this.
And so I would ask you this morning, as you think about that, and you can just see the relief that those two things bring, which image, which image does Christianity most feel like to you? A victory announcement or a recruiting pitch? Which, which, which ones, of, what are you familiar with a sermon trying to do? What do sermons most naturally feel like to you in the churches that you've been a part of maybe? A victory announcement or a, or a recruitment pitch? For Paul, Christianity was gospel. It was good news, not good advice. God has done this for you. Not you need to do so-and-so and so-and-so for God. Of course there's things we need to do for God, but let's get the order right, right? And that's the difference. In religion, Jesus is an example for you to follow, but all of the emphasis is on you and what you should be doing. In the gospel, Jesus is a savior. All of the emphasis is on him and what he has already done. Christianity is not a recruiting pitch. It is the announcement of victory based on historical events which have turned the world upside down. And if you believe them to be true, they can turn you upside down too. Understanding the gospel means understanding the terminology. And so let's look in more detail here. Chris, why don't you just leave that? Oh, you took it off. Why don't you just leave that up, if you don't mind? The one of Uncle Sam pointing at us and saying, "We want, I want you. Just leave that up until we get to the next thing. But... um. So let's 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 go through our glossary of terms here, okay? So we're going to try to world build. Uh, we need we need to deconstruct what what most of us have have experienced as religion and, and reconstruct what we mean by uh, gospel Christianity. And we're going to do so by looking at a number of the terms that Paul lays out here. The first of those is what he means by righteousness. So you'll see just these words, and I'm just going to say the words, and we're going to come back to them. In other words, what we need most, the gospel brings us, and that is this word righteousness. The second word we're going to deal with and try to define is what Paul means by faith, and that's how we get the righteousness we need. And the third word, then, is the word power. It's the righteousness of the power of God, he says. And that's what, what it does to us when it comes into our lives. And then lastly, we want to talk about if that's all true, then what does it mean for us to, as he says, not be ashamed. And so those are, those are the words we're going to go after, righteousness, faith, power, and then what Paul means by, well, don't be ashamed in that case. And so let's just work through this together quickly this morning. So the first word I want to pull out is probably the most important is this word righteousness. Look there in verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the heart of the gospel is righteousness. Well so what does that word mean? Now this is not rocket science and you you may chuckle when I say this but the word righteousness means something that is right. Righteousness is an attribute of God. Psalm 119, 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And therefore, righteousness, as Paul means it here, means to be in right relationship, or it means to be right with the God who is righteous. It means to be right with the God who is righteous. It's a relational word. I mean, have you ever had an argument with a friend, and then... uh, and then at the end, uh, you know, it's been hard. It's been, it's been testy. You're not sure where you stand. And so at the end, you, you clear things up. And then at the very end, you say, okay, okay, are we good? Are we good? Are we okay? What are you asking? You're, you're acknowledging that there was something wrong, that there was some disruption in the relationship, but it's been dealt with. It's been cleared up. And now the relationship has been repaired. To be righteous is just that. It means to be, to be back in good standing or to, you know, to be to be right, to be okay. The gospel is the, 
the good news of righteousness. And so if it's good news of righteousness, then we have to deal with the bad news. What's the bad news then? And the bad news is, is that apart from what Paul's going to teach us here, we are without righteousness. We are not right with the righteous God. That's what the Bible means by the word sin. Sin is more than just doing bad things. It's a spiritual condition, we're told. At the center of what it means to be in the condition of sin is to be without our own righteousness, which, by way of just reminder, the first man and the first woman in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 did possess before their fall. They were right with God. And therefore, to experience the loss of that righteousness also means we experience the loss of communion with God. And instead of communion, we get wrath and curse. We are not right. We are not okay. We were made to walk around naked and without shame, talking face to face with God. And yet, here we are this morning clothed, thankfully, but in many cases still ashamed and awkward and full of nagging doubts always in the back of our mind if we're quiet for one minute about whether or not we're doing okay. The heart condemns, 1 John 3.20 says. And many people, myself included, included, deal with a condemning heart by trying to become religious and then are surprised that their religiosity doesn't make them feel any better. And that is because no amount of religious observance or doing good can satisfy the conscience. No success or achievement can quiet the heart's condemnation. Religious people try the hardest, which is why they are chronically discouraged and insecure and fiercely self-righteous. And that's really, we don't have time for it this morning, but that's really my story. Is that the irony is, is that if you turn to religious observance and try to, you know, you get religion, so to speak, uh, it really doesn't do anything to, to help you. It really makes it much, much worse. Stanley Volk, in, uh, who wrote a little article called The End of the Struggle, he put it this way. I think this is going to be on the screen behind me as well. He said, there is in all of us a struggle to get in to keep our own righteousness. This struggle is as old as Adam and Eve, who, when charged with sin in Eden, at once made garments of fig leaves to give themselves some sort of covering from the holy eyes of God. We are all the same. Now, now get his, this is a great image. We're all the same, he says. Have you ever watched children build a sandcastle on the beach before an incoming tide? Frantically, they heap up their walls, patting the soft sand into solidity and reinforcing it with sticks and stones only to see it washed away at last. So we go round and round to establish our defenses against the waves of other people's criticisms or our heart's own condemnation. Life becomes one long struggle to be what we know all too well we're not. Those are haunting words. One long struggle to be what we know all too well that we are not. That's why, just to apply this, it's why social media is such a powerful unreality. It's aimed right at this part of us, the part that feels cut off, incomplete, condemned, and judged, or just ignored. Uh, it, is a, it is a righteousness factory. My girls and I uh, have been watching America's Got Talent, and now the voice starts this week. We're very excited about this. This is, this is one of the things I do with them. And I, I love these shows. Uh, and, but to be honest, uh, I could fast, if you've ever watched one of these things, I could fast forward through the performances. It's not really the performances that I enjoy the most. Uh, I, I, what I love the most is to watch the judges' reactions. And it's always, it's just so, 
it's it's almost comical, but it's but it's not. It's just so really fascinating to me. It's always these people. They do backstories on the people. You know what I'm talking about? It's always these people with like I'm talking like like they go. I don't think they go and find talented people. They go find the people with the craziest story. So it's the lady like this. It's the lady that literally survived a plane crash, and she was the only survivor of the plane crash. She happens to have, and she's burned and scarred, but she happens to have this beautiful voice. Like, how can you not vote for that, right? I mean, you're a bad person if you don't vote for that person. You see what I'm saying? Or it's the little girl. There was a little girl whose whose dad was very sick with cancer, and he literally died like three days before before the finale, and she didn't win. Like that's that's awful. Like. America should be ashamed of itself. <laughs> or they're the orphan that was bullied, and their life has been this terrible, and, and it's always this, I, nobody's ever really seen me through who I am. Nobody's ever appreciated what I, you know, I've always been hidden. I've always been passed over for, and the stories, the promos are stories of unrighteousness is what's happening there. And then what happens is, so you get tied emotionally to these people, and then they sing. Or they do this thing, and it's just, you know, and then, of course, my favorite part is the golden buzzer. And this is when, this is when uh, there's a standout act, and uh, the judge is so awed. They're so impressed. They're so floored by what's just happened. They, they slam the golden buzzer, uh, and the confetti starts to fall from the ceiling, and the place goes crazy. And basically what's happening is they're saying, you're the best. You're amazing. I love you. You know, and I'm there on the couch trying to hide my face because I don't want my little girls to see that I'm trying not to cry, right, when all this is happening? <laughs> Stupid, right? It's so silly. You remember that vulnerable part that I told you about a little while ago? This is me now. I'm moving into that, okay? And, you know, and, and don't look at me like I'm the only one, okay? Because I looked online, and, and the, all, the, all of the golden buzzers have, like, something like 35 million views on YouTube. I may have watched it again. And it's just an illustration that we watch that. And I think the reason we tune in is something about us says when that kind of thing happens, we say, I was made for that. I was made for that. That's righteousness. When the bells go off and the confetti rains down from the ceiling and the crowd stands to its feet and there that person is in the spotlight that's righteousness, but the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be talented or pretty or famous. The good news of the gospel is that there is a righteousness that can quiet the heart's condemnation. And so we come to a principle. A principle here, before we move on to our next point, is that the promise of the gospel is more than forgiveness. We have to really change the way we think about these things. If you've been in the church for a long time, particularly, you need to change the way the gospel is more than just forgiveness. We have to be careful that we don't find ourselves saying things like God is a God of second chances, which is true in one sense, but it doesn't have anything to do with the gospel because the gospel is not a do-over. Do you hear me? You awake? The gospel is not a do-over. It doesn't wipe the slate clean. It doesn't balance out the zero, and then you get to this place, okay, now I'm okay, and then you go out and you try to do better this time. Right, Steve Brown, who, who, who uh, taught preaching at RTS when I was there, he said, the only people who get any better are the people who know that if they never get any better, God will love them anyway. Paul is talking about something beyond just being forgiven. The account ledger uh, being 
put back at zero. Something more than that. The word righteousness refers to the freedom to be naked again and feel no shame. To be known without condemnation. To be right with God. The communion with him. Confetti from heaven. And uh, all of the saints in standing in great applause to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Face to face, walking and talking with God again. The struggle for righteousness, according to Christianity, is over. Now, if that is what Christianity offers, if that truly is what Paul is pointing us towards, then how do you get it? How does that come into your life? How do you get a hold of that so that you can live from that reality? And that's the question, isn't it? How do you respond? And that's our next word. The response to what God has done for us in Christ, in the gospel, is faith. So look there again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, verse 17, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Both irreligious and religious people fundamentally believe that righteousness has to come from you. It's something that you have to do. Be a good mom. Be beautiful. Achieve. Succeed. Sing the song that makes the judge press the golden buzzer, right? We're all after that golden buzzer. Work hard. Be a good person. Do it right. Follow the rules. Be better than everybody else. That's religion. And if that is the way you respond, then you're not a Christian yet because Christianity is gospel, not religion. Christianity, to use a Fleming Rutledge phrase, is an unrepeatable historical event that casts all religion into question. You don't respond to the newspaper headline, victory, by rushing down to the enlistment office and going off to war. You grab your girlfriend and you go in the streets and you dance and you sing and you kiss like they did in the streets of America in the aftermath of that victory. The righteousness in Christianity, we're told here, is something that is revealed. Do you see that? In it is revealed the righteousness. It's a revelation. It's unexpected. In other words, what the gospel teaches us is something we would never come up with on our own. It's completely different than anything the world has ever seen. Because in Christianity, of course, the righteousness we need is something God does. It has to come to us, not from us. And that is the meaning of the phrase there, verse 17. It is the righteousness of God. That is, the righteousness, the righteousness that is God's that belongs to God, that comes from him. And so in summary, we could say that God provides the very righteousness that he demands. And the way it becomes ours, the way it comes into your life is through faith. And in the Bible, faith means looking outside of yourself. It means looking away from yourself. It is the opposite of self-reliance and self-obsession. And self, um, all the other religions of the world say righteousness is what you do. It's works. Christianity says no, 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 not works, faith. And faith is the opposite of works. Religion says you do it. Faith says I can't do it. I've tried to do it and I keep failing miserably. God has to do it because I can't. And the good news of the gospel that I've been sent to tell you today is that God has done it. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second per person of the trinity took upon himself human flesh to die the death we should have died because of our sin and to live the life we should have lived jesus christ has satisfied the demands of god's law on our behalf perfectly and in every sense he was made like us hebrew says so that he might render an obedience to god that must be given to us as well his obedience to his father was complete perfect 
absolute. He loved the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength from his very first breath to his very last. There was zero selfishness in him, zero ambition or vain conceit, rather perfect humility and love, always putting the needs of others ahead of his own. And if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, if all of your trust and confidence and hope is in him and in what he has done and not in yourself, then the message of the gospel is that God takes his record of righteousness and he gives it to you as a gift. And God cancels the debt of your sins because Christ has paid for them on the cross. And so the balance is paid, the account is closed, a new account is opened, and into that account he puts all of the merit and beauty and perfection of Christ, and it's all yours, even though you did absolutely nothing to earn it or to deserve it. Wow. That's the only response, right? Luther, Luther called it an alien righteousness. That it's outside of me. It has nothing to do with me. And we've got to make the same distinction. If your faith is in Jesus, you're righteous, but not because you're righteous. Christianity is not a self-esteem project. I, I hear this, and I literally, I hear this mushy, sentimental, pop psychology stuff, passing this theology, and I just want to scream. I've been in meetings, Christian meetings, where we, where literally we stand around doing our best Stuart Smalley skit impersonation. You know that old Saturday Night Live skit? Right? You're, you're this and you're this, and gosh darn it, people like you. And you just say it to yourself over and over again until you start to believe it. You look into a mirror and you rehearse how wonderful you are and how much God loves you. That's much different, okay, than Jack Miller saying, cheer up, you're way worse than you ever imagined. <laughs> but you're far more loved than you ever dared hoped. So let me show you how this goes. And I can talk about myself, I do that a lot, but I think today I'm going to talk about you. To look you in the eye, maybe. I got to look at my notes too. But look at you and say, guys, you're a mess. Okay? You do some pretty awful things. You're selfish and arrogant and petty and full of jealousy that keeps messing up your relationships. And some of you are mean. But. But at the same time in Christ, you're holy and you're blameless before God, and you're loved. But let me remind you, not because you're any of those things, but because Jesus was all of those things, and if your faith is in him, then you're in him too, and they're all yours. Luther also called the righteousness of God a passive righteousness. If it's an alien righteousness, if it's not ours, if we can't claim it for ourselves, then it's also a passive righteousness. In other words, we do nothing for it. In fact, the only way to get it is to stop trying to do something. So listen to Luther, and this is going to be on the screen too. He says, so then... Have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? Listen to us. Listen. Have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? What's his response? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Think that little sin, although I still sin, I don't despair. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. And in that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine. I love the honesty. 
I am a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God. Man, that's faith. It's the opposite of self-reliance. Faith looks at Jesus. Faith looks to Jesus, away from self. So if somebody asks you, hey, hey, are you a Christian? And, and, and if, well, if you ask somebody, let's say it that way, hey, are you a Christian? And they respond, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying really hard. It shows they have no idea what Christianity is about. They're still stuck back in the idea that it's good advice. Or if you ask someone and they answer, well, you know, I hesitate to call myself a Christian because I don't really feel like I, you know, I'm really not worthy of, of saying that. That's a problem, too. It assumes it's about works and not faith. No, if your focus is on your performance, your record, your highs and lows, you're still on the beach trying to build sandcastles. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith, not works, not our own doing. It is the gift of God. The righteous, we're told here, verse 17, shall live by faith. God's righteousness is a passive righteousness. You only get it if you stop trying for it. Faith is ceasing. It's laying your deadly doing down. Or we could say it this way. Faith strives to rest. Faith is working hard to quit working. Let me tell you, at the end of 12 weeks of sabbatical, it's harder than it might sound. Have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. And here's one of the lessons I'm learning in my life. To do nothing is the hardest thing in the world to do. But here's the thing. But that's where the power comes from. And that's the third and last word, and we're about finished. The third word is just this, this word power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Let me tell you something. There is no power in moralism because moralism hinges on you and your strength. There's no power in moralistic churches. Because it's only when you come up against something in yourself that you can't do, it's only when you don't have the strength and you have no choice but to look outside of yourself, that's when the power comes. And that is what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Corinthians, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. If you're strong, then your limits, then you're limited by the limits of your strength. But if you're weak and you look to God, then you're open to the limitless possibilities of his strength. And that's the principle. The gospel works powerfully. It changes people. Here's the amen part, okay? You guys got to get ready for this. This is good. It makes things possible that otherwise would be impossible. Saul the persecutor becomes Paul the apostle. How? The power of God. Martin Luther, a miserable, wretched, unhappy monk, counting his beads and fasting and sweating and praying and yet being more and more conscious of his sin and his failure, that man becomes the free, fierce herald of the Reformation. How? He came upon the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, and he understood it, and there was power. Grace dismantles both fear and pride, which are the roots of sin. It's a huge statement. I wish we had time this morning to go further. We don't. But the fuel for the engine of sin is unbelief, which is always expressing itself in either fear or pride. And so the only way to change is to deal with that latent unbelief in you. And relativism doesn't do that. There's no power in relativism because the relativist doesn't believe anything. And so they say as, you know, they say as, as relativism tightens its grip on our culture, it's not making us more kind. I mean, look, holy, I mean, just, just get on Twitter for 20 seconds. It's not making us more willing to listen to people who disagree with us. It ramps up those things. And so does moralism. There's no power in moralism either. Religion manages symptoms. It doesn't treat the disease. It's all about behavior. Do this. Stop doing that. And that doesn't work. Remember, there are a lot of things that I know I shouldn't do that I can't stop doing. And it's not enough to address the behavior. I've got to address 
the belief underneath the behavior, and that's how you break the power of sin. If you take a really big sinner and you turn them into a religious person, but you don't do anything to address their fear and pride, you've just created a different kind of monster. Salvation is by grace through faith, and, and that is the only truth that can reach down and pull out the root of sin in your life. So the gospel works powerfully, but it works powerfully by pointing you at your weakness. And here you see the phrase, from faith for faith. It's an important phrase, hard to translate. Other translations put it from faith to faith. The NIV says from faith, faith by faith from first to last. And I actually like the ESV. The ESV teaches really clearly that Christianity begins with faith. It starts with faith. The power to become a Christian is God's power. It comes from faith. You become a Christian by faith, but you grow as a Christian by faith. You don't start with faith and then put it on the shelf and go back to works. The power to live as a Christian from day to day is God's power too. And so the way you access that power day after day after day is through faith. It's through weakness and prayer and confession, admitting your need and trusting God to make up for every lack in you with his power and grace. God's power comes from faith, but it's also for faith. And that's why Paul begins where he does in these verses. And that's the last thing, just really quickly, just an application. He says, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. It's the description first of Paul's eagerness to bring the gospel to the Romans. He knows that what they need is the gospel. Nothing else is the power of God. And that's helpful for us to remember. If you're in the middle of trying to help someone, what they need the most is the gospel. If you, if you give them money, Brad, without the gospel, right, it's not, it's not a good fix. We know that. Give them money, but help them, help them the way they really need to be helped. Teenagers, if, you're, if you have a friend that's in the middle of, you know, relationship problems, they need you to point them to Jesus. If you love people, you will be eager to share the gospel with them and not be ashamed because only the gospel and nothing else is the power of God. But there's, there's shame you have to work through. And it's the shame of uh, going to the Seminole game last night and then getting hungry about the time you're going through Gainesville and realizing you're about to walk into the restaurant all geared up in the middle of Gainesville. Shame. <laughs> the only thing that could have made it worse is if the Florida-Kentucky game was at noon also and they'd already won. So we were, we were treated okay because there was, the jury was still out. Shame. Don't be ashamed. Steal yourself because there's something inherently offensive about the gospel. The cross is a scandal. The Bible refers to the offense of the cross. There's only one way to become a Christian. You have to fight through the offense of the gospel. If you've never, can I say something? If you've never been offended by Christianity, you're not a Christian yet. You might just be religious. It's a problem. Our whole way of doing church today is to remove the offense of the cross and to cater to religious consumers and, and to make everything easy and nice and safe and comfortable. You can grow a church that way. You can't produce Christians that way. The gospel offends because it takes away righteousness. It's the essence of it. It's why Christianity is so hard because you have to do what Ryan and Becca had to do this morning. You have to admit that you're a failure, that you're nothing, and the pride of the human heart just can't do that. And so if you're in gospel ministry, if you're doing gospel ministry to people, you're offending people. It's not a self-esteem boost. You're taking away their righteousness. And can I just tell you, people don't usually enjoy that. They don't love you for that. I'm sure you don't like it very much when people do that to you. We all want to be coddled. When somebody confronts you, whether their motivations are good or not, it's a great opportunity. But when they take away your righteousness, you know, you don't have to get upset or angry. It's a gift. They're taking you to the gospel. Think about that. Man, that's so hard. Even if they're mean, they're doing good work in your life. Can you rejoice? 
I can't. But maybe you can. Philomene Rutledge has this great sentence. She says, the scandal of the gospel is far more evident than its meaning. The scandal of the gospel is far more evident than its meaning. She means that the experience of the truth of Christianity is the experience of the scandal. Paul Miller likes to say it's that the better you get, the worse you feel. <laughs> the more you begin to see your sin, it feels like you're getting worse, but you're actually getting better. That's the scandal. It's hard to see the truth. You see the scandal. If you're doing gospel community, there's more conflict, not less. There's more hard conversations, right? And you're tempted to think something's wrong here when, in fact, something's very, very right. The scandal is more evident. It's more self-evident than the meaning. The gospel scandalizes. It's hard. It takes you into your weakness. You've got to steal yourself and not be ashamed. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Don't be ashamed when you have to go to a place of weakness because the gospel is the power of God. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, as we conclude our service this morning and we sing together once again of the truth of your great love for us, the challenging truth of your great love for us, what it, what it forces us to admit about ourselves, which our hearts are so unwilling to do, it would be strange that we're going to sing this song now, which is a, a worship song, uh, and we're going to say some pretty awful things about ourselves. Uh, that do, those two things don't seem to go hand in hand, except that we are people who believe that the most freeing spiritual religious experience we can have is to be able to finally be that honest about ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously, but immediately turn to you, knowing uh, that it's the sick and the lonely and the poor and the needy that you invite to come. That all of the fitness that you require of us is to feel our need of you. And when we can be honest about who we really are, then we can experience the transforming power of your grace. And so we pray that these last few moments would be just that kind of experience for us. Unloose our tongues from our mouth to sing of your great love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so you stand with us and let's sing this song together. <clears throat> amen. So when those truths uh, come home to your heart, puts a message on your lips. He sends us uh, in the joy of knowing that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, amen. It is finished and the joy of knowing uh, all that our good and faithful shepherd has done to save us, that all of the work that needs to be done is, is done. And as he sends us to go and work, then it means that what we go joyfully proclaiming the good news of all that he's done for us. As we go, he promises to never leave us or forsake us, and that's the promise of these words. So receive the benediction as you go, as heralds of the gospel of grace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Come and see us tonight at 630 at Trinity. Please, you'll be so encouraged by what God's doing in our county. Uh, have a good day. Go in peace.